William Stafford wrote the following words about legacy. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you cannot get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Well, I uh, hope you brought your puck with you this morning. I brought mine. Let me just show a hands who brought their pucks with them this morning. Okay, good. Some people came ready. The rest of you. What are you thinking? Going to church without my puck? Why didn't you, you know? Wives, why didn't you say to your husband, do you have your puck with you? Okay. We'll come back to that. I'm in the third period of my life. Americans live about 78 years. Canadians live about 82 years. That should settle for you where you want to live if you're enjoying life. I'm sort of a hybrid, so maybe 80 is a good target. That puts me about three minutes and five seconds into the third period of life. Third period is an interesting time of life. Uh, It's a time when you kind of need some answers. There's no fourth period. So if you're going to figure it out, now's the time. We enjoy sports. We enjoy watching teams. I followed with great interest the Winnipeg Jets this year. I thought, this is the year. Jesus is coming back to Jets win the Stanley Cup. Both those things are going to coincide. But uh, they didn't, so Jesus is not coming back perhaps this year. But I, I, I think there are... There is this struggle that we face going through life. It's like, when do I get serious, right? When do I hunker down, or when do I say, if I'm going to win this game, I probably need to start now. I need to take this seriously now. And the third period is a good time to do that. If you don't do that earlier, what happens? People come to you and they say, why didn't you play in the first and second period like you played in the third period? Why did it take you two periods to get there, two and a half periods to get there? And the questions that sports teams wrestle with in the first and second period, you know, what's our opponent like? What are they good at? How are they going to make adjustments? What's their strength? How can we counter that? What do we do with that center? That goalie saves everything except souls. How are we going to get it past him? We have those similar questions in life. And I want to talk to you this morning about three, three really important ones, and like many, many questions, they're the kind of questions that you didn't ask. The best questions in life, we don't ask. They're asked by God, or they're set up by God in conversations as Jesus walked this earth. It's important they don't come for us because we're trapped in culture and we're trapped in time, and we tend to ask these questions that just don't endure. You know, how much for the hamburger is an important question at lunch, but it just doesn't last beyond that. And a lot of questions we ask are driven by our present needs, but they're not enduring. I want you to think with me this morning about three, three important questions that I think define what the third period's about. And then I want to come back at the end. I want to ask you about the first and second period, okay? First question is this. 
Where are you? Where are you? First question recorded in the Bible. First question we have any record of. And the question was asked by God. It was asked of Adam, and it was read earlier this this morning, the text. I won't reread that. But God wasn't asking Adam a geographical question. He wasn't asking Adam, where are you? Give me some coordinates here, GPS, so that I can track you. He was asking Adam, where are you relative to where you and I both expected you to be when you got up this morning? When Adam got up that morning, Eden was a perfect place. The world had not broken. When Eve got up that morning, the world was a perfect place. It had not broken. And by the evening when the sun went down, the legacy of so much that we inherited in our daily life was set. Adam was in a place he had not planned to be. And God asked him, where are you? There are some simple rules set in the Garden of Eden. God basically said to Adam and Eve, look, the whole place is yours. You got the run of the place. Eat yourself silly on all the fruit you want. You won't gain a pound. Just one thing. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. The day you eat of it, you'll die. And then the tempter comes to Eve. And the tempter comes to Eve, I think, in the way that he comes to us. It's a setup, and we don't see it. Comes to Eve and he says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from all the trees in the garden? And Eve says what? They didn't say that. You've got this wrong. God actually said this, we can eat of any tree we want to except the one in the middle. Now that's heady stuff, right? It's heady when the Satan, when the tempter comes to you and starts a conversation with you and you're, you're able to correct him. Oh, you have this wrong. You've got God all wrong. It's very, very heady stuff. And when that happens within the context of how very smart we think we are at that moment, because we've corrected the tempter, we think we're in a position where we can comment on and question God's intentions. That's what comes next in the conversation. We've been set up. It's like the tempter says to us, I had no idea how very smart you are. Wow. So God told you, you know what? It's really not quite like you think it is. You're very smart, but it's not quite like you think it is. God actually is just a tad afraid of you. God doesn't want you to catch up. Because he knows that if you eat from this tree, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to know good, and you're going to know evil. And so this is the end game of our experience with the tempter. We engage and we respond to the doubt planted. We deem ourselves very intelligent. We mistrust and question our creator. And we find the freedom and the eye-opening experience that we were promised by the tempter. Sort of. And then the bill comes. So much was lost. First, Adam and Eve's purpose in creation was marred. They had this great mandate to rule over, to subject the earth, to have dominion over it. That was skewed. The relationship with each other in the image of God as male and female created equal in the image of God. That was skewed. Their access to the garden and the freedom and participating in God's instructions. That was skewed. Their relationship to each other, women bearing children in great pain in childbirth, men struggling to make a living by the sweat of their brow, so much 
was skewed. And I can just picture the tempter crossing his arms and saying, Welcome to eyes wide open. Not quite what you expected, is it? Jan Schulman was a research scientist in Germany. Several years ago, she was leading a group of scientists experimenting with people finding their directions. She ran a number of different experiences, but the last one was put them on an open plane, put a bag over their head, kind of like what you're going to see on the slides here in just a second, and, and just ask them to do something very simple. Walk a straight line. And they couldn't do it. They found that if you take away a person's compass points, their reference points, they inevitably start to walk in a circle. First they thought, well, maybe one leg's stronger than the other, one leg's longer than the other. They'd walk in a circle left, you put the bag over their heads, and next time they walk a circle in the right. I just want to ask you to think for a moment about this question, where are you, this third person, third period question, where are you? Are you going straight? Are you heading toward the voice of the one who calls you, the one who loves you, the one who created you, the one who set you here, intended for a purpose, intended to make a difference, to impact lives? Or are you walking in a circle? How would you answer the question? Are you imagining yourself making progress Or are you saying no to the historic, credible markers in Scripture? Understanding language, the language of one who's speaking to you is so important, right? If you don't speak the language and understand the nuance, you can be lost. When our family moved here, I was in the eighth grade, and my first class, my homeroom period at Hedges Junior High was French. You can anticipate where this is going. I was 13 years old. I had an atrocious Texas accent. The only chair left was at the front of the room. Teacher said to me, Miss Dufresne, she said, Anthony, we're so glad you're with us. I need to place you. I need to understand your fluency in French. I could have answered that question for her. She said, here's our textbook. I want you to read a line from the textbook. So I did. And the whole class fell apart laughing. My teacher, Miss Dufresne, was laughing so hard she was folded over and she had tears in her eyes. I just sat there. She said, after a minute, collected her bit, you know, herself and said, Anthony, I'm so sorry. Uh, can you do that one more time? We promise we won't laugh. I did it one more time. It happened all over again. You know, it was at that moment that I decided I probably don't have a future in French. I need to lose my Texas accent before I get into French. But I don't understand French. I know enough to read a cereal box. I don't understand Spanish. I know enough to read a stop sign. But I don't understand the nuance of the language. It's important to to realize that when you interface with the tempter, you're interfacing with somebody who Jesus said lying is his native tongue. If you want to know when the tempter's lying, it's when he opens his mouth. Everything after that that flows out of that is not true. It is a setup. It is meant to destroy you. It is meant to rob you. The thief comes only to steal, to kill And what? To destroy. That's the tempter. Understanding that language is important. Knowing that language is important. Where are you? 
Who are you listening to? Especially you third period folks. Whose voice are you hearing? Leads us to the second question. And the second question is, who can forgive sins? Now this text was also read a few minutes ago. Man is brought before Jesus. They dig a hole in the roof because the place is so packed they can't get in. And so they lower this man down through the hole in the roof. They put him in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, My son, my child, your sins are forgiven. And there's a group of the religious establishment standing there and they're evaluating this and they're, they're thinking, they're thinking, who can, and this is, this, is a, this is good theology here, they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? You're suggesting something by what you're doing that we're not prepared to embrace. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're blaspheming. And Jesus, Jesus said, What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take up your pallet, and go home? So you know that I have the authority to forgive sins on earth. Watch this. Get up, take up your pallet, and go home. And something happened in that moment. Jesus connected sin, and he connected the earth's pain. These two are joined at the hip. We look for all kinds of causes. It's reasonable and prudent what we're doing, but if you want to look for the first cause, the Scripture gives that connection. And it's the connection between disobedience of God who said, the day you eat of it, you'll die. You don't die physically, but there's a spiritual death which begins that has tremendous ramifications through your life and through our society and our culture. Because of what we've inherited from Eden's brokenness, we have to talk you have to talk about sin. You have to talk about failure. Why? Because it's everywhere. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians that I grew up with. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is, who you know what's that next, what that next word is? Such as is common. <laughs> Take your worst temptation. You know what the Bible says about that? Common. We have so much in common about brokenness. My question is, if failure is part of the human condition, what is your plan for handling it, for addressing it? This is an important strategic question. I've observed several responses to the reality of sin and failure over the years. Some try to ignore it. They numb themselves to it. They drink themselves into oblivion or work to ignore it. Some work to quantify it. Some rage at it. They become like a social cancer cell because they're angry at everything and they don't give a rip about who they impact or affect. But there's a better way. And the better way is to find forgiveness. But the question is, from whom? Not from each other, surely. I mean, we're part of the problem. We're not the solution. I mean, even a great idea wielded by sinners is at best like giving a scalpel to a surgeon with Parkinson's. Of course I can help you. It's not comforting. It's like two people who've wrecked their boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and one says to the other, hey, I'm drowning here. And the other turns to him and says, I'll save you. It's not comforting. We're 2,000 miles from any coastline. I've got news for you. We're both going down. This will not end well. 
I get the intent, but the outcome will not fix our problem. Because you have sinned, because I have sinned, we are incapable of meaningfully addressing each other's deepest need. I mean, from an ethics platform, I would ask it this way. From what moral bank account do you extend forgiveness to another person? We intuitively know it doesn't work, so the conversation, the conversation goes like this. You offend me, you realize that you say, you say what? You say, I'm sorry, and the appropriate response to I'm sorry is what? That's okay. We don't speak the language of forgiveness because we know that we're not equipped to address it. So we very seldom say to somebody else, will you forgive me? And listen as the other person says, I forgive you, but it still begs the ethical question, from what moral bank account do you withdraw the right to forgive? That is the question that the religious elite were struggling with that afternoon when Jesus healed the man. From what moral bank account, who do you think you are saying as a man that you can forgive someone else's sin? a very, very important question. There's only one moral bank account to draw on for the forgiveness of sin, and it was set up in the life and the brutal death of Jesus Christ as real blood punishment for our sin. The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In a very real fashion, there is no sin forgiven as we think of the forgiveness of sin. God doesn't say when we've sinned, oh, that's okay. God says of sin, you will either bear the punishment of that sin or someone else will bear the punishment of that sin. There's no third alternative for sin. This is a very important message for Elam Chapel too, by the way. When culture asks, what do we do about sin? What do we do about failure? You point to the only solution, the only moral bank account from which sin can be forgiven, and that is from the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where every sin was punished. Not one said, that's okay. So the moral outrage of the universe is satisfied as someone is punished in each of our place. This brings us to the third question. How do you write checks on that account? How do you withdraw from that account? You say, my life is broken. I have broken relationships. Things aren't going well. How do I draw on that account? I have people, I don't just not like them. I hate them. How am I supposed to be able to extend forgiveness to that? How am I supposed to be able to release that? This brings up the third question. The third question is, why do you call me good? This text was read this morning as well. Man comes to Jesus and he's got everything together. He's, uh, he's wealthy, he's young, he's, who knows, good looking. Comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with an interesting question. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one person that's good, and that's God. And if I could say something here parenthetically, it's like Jesus is asking, let's make sure who you're talking to. Do you think of me as someone as good, or are you coming to me thinking of me as God? 
He'd watched his ministry, followed him probably for some time, knew that something was happening around Jesus, and so he pursued him, came, presented him with this question, and Jesus, you know how the story ends. The man says, I've done all these good things in my life. I've kept the commandments. And so Jesus said, you know, you just need one thing. You're just lacking one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Am I still good? Who are you talking to here? Are you talking to a good guy? Or are you talking to God in the flesh? We're about to find out. And the man did what? The man walked away very sad because he owned a lot. And he couldn't make this jump. He couldn't make this leap from Jesus as good to Jesus as God. It's a problem for many in our culture today for at least two reasons. First, because we think of ourselves typically as good. And second, because while the idea of God is conceptually nice, it ignores just how very smart we are. So we walk away like the man did because you won't step from Jesus because he wouldn't step from Jesus is good to Jesus is God. This is Eden all over again. So the hunger remains, the search continues, the materialism endures, and it does not end well. Rather than face the truth, realizing we're either all in or all out, we just compare ourselves to each other and call it good. You're not bad, I'm not bad, that must be good. But in reality, we're comparing ourselves to each other, and that's not the standard. That's not who we're called to compare ourselves to. I remember Bill Hybels, who pastors a really large church in Chicago, um, telling a story years ago. He was playing uh, racquetball. This tells you how old the story is, because racquetball isn't played much anymore. But he was playing racquetball, and he was in the locker room afterwards, and this guy comes in, and they struck up a conversation, and Bill talked about his ministry, and... and uh, Bill just said, uh, so how, you know, tell me about your faith in God. How are you doing? And the man said, I don't go to church much. I don't need God much. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And Bill said, yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I know what you mean. You know, I, I, there's some really good people in the world. Mother Teresa, you know, who ministered to the down and outs, uh, the untouchables in Calcutta. I've, I've heard her talk about how good she is. And she says, compared to God, on a scale of one to ten, she would put herself at, you know, like a one. And I've heard Billy Graham talk about his own goodness, and he's compared himself to Mother Teresa, and he says, I would never compare myself to Mother Teresa. Whatever she is, I'm way below her on a scale of 1 to 10, so Billy Graham's like a, you know, a point five. And he says, I pastor this big church in South Barrington, Illinois, but I would never compare myself to Billy Graham. I'm way below Billy Graham, so I'm like a point one. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put yourself? Comparing each other, comparing ourselves to each other is not the right comparison. When you compare yourselves appropriately to God, the gap is vast. We come to him with our questions. We come to him with our brokenness. We ask him for help. And the big question that Jesus asks is, am I good or am I God? Are you coming to me for advice or are you coming to me for transformation? Are you coming to me because you stubbed your toe or are you coming to me because you know how deep 
and brokenness, deep the brokenness is in your heart, and you want to receive me as God, not good. If you would make that leap, the Bible says you must deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Let's get back to the puck. I want to be fair to those who brought their puck this morning. You have this in common with a puck. In the game of life, it can feel like nothing much else is happening except you're having the bejeebers knocked out of you as you're slapped back and forth down the ice. You have this in different than a puck. You have a choice. The reality is, is you're at the center of a contest, a fierce contest between good and evil, between God and the adversary, the Satan, and you are valuable. And it can be disorienting at times as you find yourself on the ice being slapped from here to there and wondering, who do I look to? Who do I turn to? How do I get oriented appropriately? The writer of Hebrews says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's a curious verse of scripture because the writer of Hebrews here says, yes, remember your leaders, specifically those God speakers, those who spoke the word of God into your life. God's word, not their word. And you need to think carefully about the outcome of their way of life. What did it net them? What difference did it make? What contribution did it make? And then he says, imitate their faith. You're not a clone. You're not supposed to have a do-over. And you don't necessarily imitate their way of life. You imitate their faith. So how they navigated life and maintained faith, that's what you should do. And so we're back to the game. I started out calling these game-changing questions from the third period, but that's because I think that's when we finally start to understand their true importance. I told you I would come back to this. The question I want to ask now is, does that mean you only need to address them in the third period? When I was early in the second period of my life, I had two advisors engaging me on some financial-related matters. One was telling me to buy land in Missouri, One was telling me to buy some shares of a little-known company called Netflix. We bought some property in Missouri. And uh, we thought we got a screaming deal until we looked carefully, and we realized that we had bought the old Liberty Township dump. Looked good on the surface, but when you dug a little bit, there was a lot of trouble there. We carried that for about 12 years, and we finally found somebody who liked it better than we did, and we sold it. We made a little bit of money. I'm happy to tell you that I did buy a few shares of Netflix, $3.73. Anybody know what it closed out on Friday? $408. But I grieve because I think if I would have put the same money in Netflix that I put into this land in Missouri, we could all go out for lunch together and I would buy. 
and we could do it tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. I would have to work hard just to spend the interest that was coming off of that money. It's kind of like life. You have two advisors speaking into your ears. It's like the old image of an angel and devil, two people speaking, and you must decide how you're going to respond to that. And it's, it's easy to think I can wait until the third period. But it's important to address these issues in the first and the second period. Why? Because of what comes from the compounded interest. Poor decisions in the first and second period revisit you in the third period, and they bring all their kids. The compound interest comes with it. And you think, I wasn't expecting this. This is something I hadn't planned on. And the same is true as when you invest in a good way. Good shows up with the compound interest with all their kids. And it's a tremendous thing. People from all three periods are here. You have a choice in all three periods. If you think you're going to live through all of them, you may ignore the questions. You may invest your life thinking of God as good or you as God and be, I think, disappointed when the buzzer sounds, realizing you've been deceived. Or as Oz Guinness writes, we may respond to the call and rise to become magnificent creatures. Only one caller can call us to be. In this recipe for faceless personality, is that what it is? Is it a recipe for a cramped life? On the contrary, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. The alternative is the real disaster. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. Only when we respond to Christ and follow his call do we become our real selves and come to have personalities of our own. So when it comes to identity, modern people have things completely back to front. Protesting to be unsure of God, they pretend to be sure of themselves. Followers of Christ put things the other way around. Unsure of ourselves, we are sure of God. Get this right, and there's no limit to what God can do through you when you believe. You may see the results in 10 minutes, you may not see the results for 10 generations. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain the thread. It's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you cannot get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Where are you? Who can forgive sin? Why do you call me good? Good questions. I hope you have an answer. Maybe you've developed one this morning.
May God help you as you respond to those. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and love. I remember the words of Gordon MacDonald who made a disastrous decision in his life. And he writes, I always thought I could control the damage. All of us, I'm guessing all of us have learned we can't. When stuff goes wrong, it just goes wrong in spades and it, it has results we weren't planning on. And my prayer this morning is that every person here would be pointed to Jesus Christ. That's all I know to do. No matter how smart a person is, how credentialed they are, or how uneducated a person is, no matter how broke a person is, no matter how financially set a person is, no matter how popular or hated a person is, the thread is pointing a person to Jesus Christ. I I believe that. I'm not always great at it, Lord, but I believe it. And I pray that if there's one here this morning who is not holding on to that thread, has never grabbed that thread, that they would do it in this moment. They'd reach out to Jesus in simple faith and trust and say, I believe, and grab on. Amazing things can happen when you believe. Sometimes they happen, God, we've seen it in 10 minutes, and sometimes we never see it. It takes generations. Help us believe. Help us if each of us are involved in setting a legacy to set it with the long view in mind. And we thank you for your great mercy and grace which makes it all possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.